In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, you do declare your glory in the heavens, the stars, and the moon. Declare who you are. But Lord, we get only a glimpse. We, we get sort of a murky picture, a clearer picture, a more profound picture of who you are and what you do is found in your word. And so this morning we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would... Uh, lift up some spirits this morning, Lord, that you'd put fresh wind in our sails. Lord, that you would help us leave encouraged and blessed and ready to tackle the challenges that are before us. We love you so much, and we dedicate this time to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On Ward 7E of a psychiatric hospital in Portland, Oregon, a discussion took place between a patient named Don Baker and a hospital counselor. Follow along with me as Don recounts the conversation. Counselor, how do you feel? I don't know. Don writes, actually, I rarely felt anything. And when I did, feelings were undefinable. Slowly, words began to form. Sad, empty, Alone, helpless, afraid, rejected? Do you sleep well? If I had the energy, I would have laughed. All the time and never, I said. Sleep was no longer a nightly reviving experience. It was an escape mechanism. How do you feel about your job? I'm a failure. How do you feel about yourself? Inadequate. Again, Don writes, My confidence had hit rock bottom. I had suffered a total loss of self-esteem. How do you feel about your family? Unworthy. I know they love me, but I don't deserve their love. How often do you and your wife have sex? I couldn't remember. Are you having difficulty making decisions? I could hardly decide how to answer the question. Do you like to be around people? Don barked at the counselor. Please, just leave me alone. Are you often angry? Don recalls, and with that question, I just buried my head and started to sob. Oh, yes, and always with the ones I love the most. How do you feel when you get angry? Guilty? Unforgivably guilty. Finally, the counselor asked, Have you ever thought of suicide? Don replied, At least once a day. There on Ward 70, it didn't take a professional psychiatrist to identify Don Baker as deeply depressed. But here's what I want you to notice that wasn't apparent from the interview Don isn't an alcoholic or a drug addict. 
He wasn't the victim of some shock or trauma. He wasn't a soldier coming home from the war. He hadn't lost a job or seen his house burn, nor was he diagnosed with an incurable disease. Don hadn't been the product of poverty or an impoverished childhood, nor was he falsely accused of a crime. No, Don Baker was and is a pastor, and a very successful one at that. Thousands of people have come to Christ through Don's ministry. His churches have always grown numerically. The people he pastors love him dearly. God gives him vital insights into the scripture. Don is in great demand as a Bible teacher. And here's my point. Don Baker is the classic example. You can be a Christian and still get depressed. Even Christians get discouraged. Sometimes Christians grow deeply depressed. Even children of God have bouts with the blues. In his day, John Henry Jowett was known as the greatest English-speaking preacher in the world. But Dr. Jowett once wrote, You seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy. By no means. I am often perfectly wretched, and everything appears most murky. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is often called the Prince of Preachers, but he once confessed, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful, I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. A more modern example would be Cynthia Swindoll, the wife of famous Bible teacher Charles Swindoll. Cynthia writes, Black as a thousand midnights in a cypress swamp, Loneliness that is indescribable. The feeling that you've been abandoned, that you're worthless. It is difficult to believe my life was darkened by depression for so long. Fifteen years. Even a pastor's wife can get brutally depressed. And no less a Christian than the Apostle Paul, an ambassador for Christ and a hero of our faith, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 8, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. J.B. Phillips translates that verse. We were completely overwhelmed. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that this was the end. Dark days were common not only for Paul, but for many biblical heroes. Elijah called fire down from heaven. He single-handedly challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown and won a great victory for God. But when threatened by that wicked, angry, bitter old lady, Queen Jezebel, he went into a deep depression. He went out into the desert to sulk. 1 Kings 19 verse 4 tells us, Elijah sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am better, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah went from the spiritual mountaintop to the pit of despair in a matter of hours. And if men like Paul and Elijah, Job and Jeremiah, were among us today, they would tell us that being a Christian doesn't make a person immune to bouts with the blues. 
Jesus taught us we are in the world, but not of it. Certainly, don't be of this world. Don't let the world's values or philosophies shape how you think and act. But realize, though you're not of it, you're still in it. You're still subject to the same heartbreaks and heartaches and disappointments and sorrows as everyone else. As citizens of this world, we're still in it. And we take its punches, even when those punches are below the belt. You see, there are all kinds of reasons that Christians can get down in the dumps. Excruciating circumstances. Catastrophic losses rip open our hearts. The blues can move in after a long spell of emotional and spiritual depletion and exhaustion. Hey, even a successful stint of service for God can also be followed by an emotional letdown. Trust me, a pastor is especially prone to blue Mondays. I decided a long time ago I would never make an important decision on Mondays. Demands can stress, Satan can oppress, difficulties can depress. A root of bitterness or an unconfessed sin or a chronic self-pity can rob us of the joy that God intends to bring to our hearts. And this doesn't even take into consideration the fact that on occasion certain physical conditions can have a bearing on our emotional and on our spiritual health. You see, here's my point. Seldom is about with the blues a result of just one cause. More often, it's the compound effect of several factors impacting us all simultaneously. And this means that the way to beat the blues depends on the cause and the depth of our particular depression. If your problem is self-pity, then you might just need a kick in the pants. If you're defeated... Maybe your cure is a pat on the back. If you're under a spiritual attack, you'll overcome through prayer. If you're suffering a medical problem, perhaps God will heal you supernaturally or even by a miracle of modern medicine. For the record, I do believe there are causes of serious depression that are the result of physical illness and legitimate chemical imbalances in the brain. Your brain, like your kidneys and liver and spleen, they're bodily organ. It's a bodily organ, your brain. And it can get sick. It can misfire. Sometimes the treatment and remedy of a malfunctioning brain can be medicinal. In such cases, I think it's good wisdom for a Christian to consult a competent physician and take the appropriately prescribed drugs. But, are mood-altering drugs Overprescribed in our society? Absolutely. You see, the desire today is to avoid pain at all costs. And the easiest way around an emotional rut or an emotional pain is to pop a pill. It takes very little, it's real simple. Even Christians today are opting to chemically deaden the pain of every heartbreak and every headache. When the pain of every loss, when the pressure of every cross comes, people want to lessen the load as quickly and as easily as possible, and so they pop a pill. I believe this is short-sighted. We need to reconsider God's purpose for our pain. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, there is a spiritual component to every trial and tribulation we face, which requires a spiritual solution. That's why if you solve your problem with a pill without listening and looking for God, you'll miss the lesson. You see, regardless of the cause of our suffering, in fact, regardless of its cure, there are issues that God desires to address in the midst of our hurt. Thus, the person who goes through trials without considering God's purpose for that pain will become spiritually stunted. You don't truly beat about with the blues without dealing with those prickly issues that arise between you and God. God always uses suffering and difficulty to force us to himself. To learn to lean on the Holy Spirit. You've missed the point if it forces you to lean elsewhere. You see, our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 teaches us that when we fight a battle with the blues, there are three truths that we desperately need to remember. First, we need to remember who God is. Second, we need to remember what God does in us. And then third, we need to remember what God does through us. Here's what you need to recall in the midst of your trial. Who God is, what God does in you, and what God will do through you. First, remember who God is. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, a little later in the chapter, Paul writes ominously. Read with me verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Now Paul is rather vague as to what this reference really means. We're not certain. But one thing's for sure, whatever it was, it was a dangerous situation. One commentary suggests that it was an official verdict, perhaps an order for Paul's arrest and execution. Maybe his sentence of death was literally a death sentence. If this is true, Paul's reaction here is amazing. While Paul has a bounty on his head, he erupts with praise in his heart. Understand, today's text, this verse that we read, this is not just a verse of Scripture. This is the verse of a song. Paul opens this letter to the Corinthians with a song of blessing to God. Verses 3 and 4 are a doxology of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. It blows my mind. Paul's head is on the chopping block, but his eyes are on the unstoppable rock, his Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to bless God. During the 30-year war of the 17th century, Martin Rinkert faithfully served his church in Ellenburg, Saxony. Pastor Rinkert's ministry saw many war-torn years. There were times when he conducted as many as 40 funerals in a single day. The pastor wrote of having preached 4,000 funerals over the course of his ministry. You'd expect such a man to have a negative outlook on life. But Rinkert wrote a table grace for his children. Today, it gets sung as a hymn. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom the world rejoices. 
even through decades of war, even surrounded by untold death and dying, first-hand observer of battles and bloodshed, still Martin Rinkert's delight was to glorify God. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. He too was in a mess, but his desire was to bless God. And so he sings out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives to God the most striking title. It's profound what he calls the Almighty, the Eternal One. He refers to him as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If you were a first century pagan reading this passage, Paul's title for God would jump off the page. You'd be shocked. You see, no one familiar with the Greek pantheon of gods ever thought of a God who specialized in comfort and who majored on mercy. The Greek gods, they threw down thunderbolts. When the, their capricious whims were violated, they sought retribution. They were known for their power and their lust and their envy and their greed and their vengeance. But mercy and comfort... These virtues were not on their list of divine attributes. And yet Paul tells us that the one true God is a God of mercy and comfort. In Hebrew culture, the expression, the father of, is the same as saying the originator of. According to John chapter 8 verse 44, Satan is the father of lies. Why? Because he told the first one. He's the inventor of lies. And likewise, the concept of mercy originated in God. You need to remember who God is. The God of the Bible is the first mind that ever thought the idea of showing you mercy. Our God holds the patent on mercy and comfort. The Bible tells us in Exodus 20 verse 6 that God shows mercy to thousands. Numbers 14 verse 18 tells us, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Psalm 136 repeats over and over again, His mercy endures forever. In other words, God's mercy never runs out. There's an endless supply. God has an unlimited supply of mercy and comfort. I love Ephesians 2 verse 4. It reads, God is rich in mercy. Aren't you glad God is rich in what you need most? Hey, when we get to heaven, we won't care that God is rich in gold and silver, though He is. We'll be glad He didn't invest in the stock market, or Middle East petroleum futures, or hedge funds, or whatever. In heaven, we'll be glad that God sunk all of His riches into mercy. That he has enough mercy to cancel every sin that's ever been committed by every person who's ever lived. And he still has an abundance of leftover mercy. Remember God. Remember who he is. He is the God of mercy. Never assume God won't forgive you. He is the father of mercy. Reminds me of the middle schooler who was asked to usher at a wedding. 
A veteran usher explained to his young protege, he said, before you escort the lady down the aisle, you ask her, guest of the bride or guest of the groom? You put the groom's guests on one side and you put the bride's guests on the other side. But that's not exactly the way it came out of the little guy's mouth. At the wedding, the young usher was overheard asking, ma'am, whose side are you on? <laughs> one thing is certain. If you're in Christ Jesus the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort is on your side. As Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? The true God is a God who cares and comforts and shows amazing amounts of mercy. And notice when this understanding of who God is bears down on the apostle's mind. Apparently, it's when Paul is in the midst of his trials that he's quickest to cry out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. When you encounter adversity and depression, when that depression starts to set in, when the cloud hovers overhead, that's when you need to remember that it's in the fires of life, in the hot spots, that we get to know God. Who can forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. These were the Hebrews thrown into the furnace. When they refused to bow to the Babylonian idol, the king had them tossed into the flames. But there in the belly of the furnace, they were not alone. For the Son of God was with them. Jesus was there with them in the midst of their trial. Just like he'll be with you when you feel the heat. Read the Psalms and you'll discover David's greatest revelations of God rose out of his deepest depressions. Read the Gospels. Every miracle that Jesus ever performed on earth initially began as someone's problem or difficulty. It's one thing for us to come to church and discuss God's faithfulness. It's an entirely different matter to learn of his faithfulness when our back is against the wall and we've got nowhere to turn but up. It's easy to talk about the power of God. It's another experience to draw upon that power when we're weak and down and depressed. We can sing of God's sovereignty and superiority when all is well, but we're not really challenged to trust him until he works in ways that we don't understand. The most significant lessons that we learn in a trial are the lessons that we learn about God himself. It took me a long time to learn this. It's not what we learn from the affliction that counts as much as it, as it is what we learn through the affliction about the nature of God. That's what matters most. In the midst of a trial, always remember who God is. And second, remember what God does in us. In verse 4, we're told that God comforts us in all our tribulation. This English word translated comfort is from the Latin word, two Latin words, which mean with strength. You see, God's comfort is more than just pity. It doesn't just commiserate with us. His comfort makes us stronger. Reminds me of the young mother. She wrote, It was one of the worst days of my life. The washing machine broke down. The telephone kept ringing. My head ached. And the mail carrier brought a bill I had no money to pay. 
almost to the breaking point. I lifted my one-year-old into his high chair, leaned my head against the tray, and began to cry. Without a word, my son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it into mine. <laughs> hey, I know people who just like to share pacifiers. They like to get together and nurse each other's wounds and cry together over spilt milk. But this is not the comfort God specializes in. God's comfort is more than a pacifier. God gives you strength and power and dynamic to rise up in His Spirit and tackle the challenges you face. There's a whiskey named Southern Comfort. Hope you don't know much about it. But its manufacturers have launched a new campaign, an ad campaign. This out of shape fella in a Speedo, he's walking down the beach with a whiskey in his hand. I couldn't show you the whole picture, it's so disgusting. But he obviously doesn't care about what people think. I mean, all that matters to him is whatever's comfortable. Apparently, the whiskey has stunted his inhibitions and any embarrassments he might feel over his appearance. And this is the comfort that whiskey brings, or for that matter, this world brings. Rather than change you for the better and alter your situation, the world's comfort numbs our pain and dumbs down our shame and lets us escape our difficulty only for a few moments. Hey, but when you rise up out of the hangover, your problem's still there, isn't it? And often it's, it's actually worse. Whereas if the man in the ad received God's comfort, he'd sober up, probably get in better shape, stop embarrassing himself and his family. Southern comfort masks your problems, whereas God's comfort sobers and steadies and strengthens us. He comforts us in order to free us from what shames us. He helps us overcome what drags us down and holds us back. God's comfort helps us to face the challenges of life. The Greek word translated in verse 4 as comfort is the word parakletos, from which, which actually means to come alongside. But you'll identify that word as the name that Jesus used for the Holy Spirit. Jesus called the Spirit the parakletos, or our comforter. You see, God's Spirit comes alongside us to prop us up, to make us stronger. Southern comfort is about distilled spirits. God's comfort is about the Holy Spirit. So often we're told to draw upon God's strength. But here's a mental, a mental picture for you to try to illustrate how this works. I have a lawn tractor I got for Father's Day. My wife bought me a tractor for Father's Day. And I use it for yard work out, out in the yard. And the other day, me and my 18-month-old grandson, Quincy, went for a ride. Quincy sat in my lap and steered, sort of. I still had my hand on the wheel. My feet were still on the pedals. But he thought he was driving the tractor. And this is how our relationship with God rolls. Supposedly you're driving... But if you're trusting God, if you're walking in the Holy Spirit, He is alongside you. You're in His lap. He's propping you up. He's prodding you with instructions. He's handling the pedals. He's propelling you with His strength. And He's right there to grab the wheel if you need Him. 
This is the kind of comfort that God gives to those who abide in trust in the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 4 tells us that God comforts us in all our tribulation. The Greek word translated tribulation is also a word with interesting connotations. Thalipsis means to narrow or confine or place under pressure. Tribulation is a set of circumstances that hem us in, that pressure us, that cramp our style. God puts us in those kinds of dilemmas. And Paul explains why in verse 9. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. God orchestrated the tribulations in Paul's life to remind him how much he needed to trust in God. I once saw a cartoon that depicted two cows grazing out in a pasture when suddenly a milk truck drove by. And painted on the side of the milk truck were these words, pasteurized, homogenized, standardized, vitamin A added. One of the cows, he just sort of sighed and he moaned to the other. That makes you feel kind of inadequate, doesn't it? One of the reasons that God puts us through difficulties is to expose our inadequacies. Trials humble us. They remind us just how much we need God. Hey, let me ask you. If it was always smooth sailing, how much do you think you'd pray? Well, not as much as you do now. In the midst of your bout with the blues, remember who God is. And remember what God does in you. He wants to remind you how much you need Him. If your tribulation deepens your knowledge of God, if it causes you to strengthen your trust in Christ, then ultimately it is worth any discomfort it may have caused. God brings us comfort in all our tribulations. And in the trial, remember what God does through us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that God comforts us, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. He comforts us to make us comforters. I love Peterson's paraphrase of verse 4. He says, God comes alongside us, When we go through hard times, and before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. He comforts us so that we can comfort others, other sufferers. You see, God wants to involve you in his work. But you have to go through certain necessary preparations. I mean, what kind of impact do you think you'll have on suffering people if God saved you and insulated you from all trouble? I mean, if you never got sick, or stumped your toe, or sliced a tee shot, or finished last, or got bummed out, do you really think the people around you would listen when you talk to them about the comfort and mercies of God? I mean, what would you say to them if you'd never experienced the hurt they were feeling? Never felt the throb of their pain? How could you help them at all? Sure, you could quote some verses at them. You could probably give them some sound advice. But how far do you think that would wiggle its way down into their soul if it wasn't laced with some real empathy? 
The late Joe Bailey in his book, View from a Hearse, he talks about his experiences in the aftermath of losing one of his children. He says, I was sitting there torn by grief. Someone came and talked of God's dealings and of why it happened and of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he would go away. He finally did. Another person came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. If you lose a child, or if you lose your spouse, I can visit with you, and I can spend a few hours saying the right things. I've got plenty of truth I can unpack and unload. But I know it wouldn't be near as meaningful as a visit from someone who could say the right things bathed in the comfort that they received in the midst of that same pain. You see, even Jesus had to undergo this kind of preparation. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin... Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can confidently approach Jesus for help. Why? Because he knows firsthand the help that we need. When my son Zach was three or four years old, he spent the night over at his grandparents' house and Zach and dad, they were in the den playing cowboys. Toy guns were blazing. Villains and sheriffs were dropping like flies. Every time Zach got shot, he'd fall on the ground. His granddaddy would race over to the wounded cowboy. He'd opened up his shirt. He'd pull out his knife. And he'd cut that bullet right out of his chest. And then he'd sew him back up. They'd start playing again. Well, at one point in the shootout, Grandma walked through the room. Zach hit the deck. She decided she'd jump into the action. So she opened up his shirt. She cut the bullet out of his chest. She sewed him back up. But rather than popping up to continue to play, Zach just laid there on the ground motionless. Finally, he looked up at his grandma and he said, Grandma, there's only one problem. They shot me in the leg. (laughs) And realize... This is why Jesus is such an excellent comforter. For he knows exactly where you hurt. For like you, he has plumbed the depths of depression. Jesus knows the agony of a betrayal and the pain of a cruel death. He has felt our sorrow in order to bring us his joy. It's been accurately said, God does not comfort us To make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. You see, the tendency for hurting folk is to sit on the sidelines and sulk in their own sadness. Just fixate on their own pain. But God allows us to suffer so that we can grasp His strength and then share it with others who have that same need. A famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, he gave a lecture on the subject of mental health. After his talk, he took questions. 
He was asked, what would you advise if a person was on the brink of a nervous breakdown? Everyone expected Meninger to, Meninger to say, consult with a psychiatrist. Instead, the doctor responded, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks, find someone in need, and then do something to help that person. The tendency for us when we hurt is to shut down and to lick our own wounds. But the healing comes when we keep on caring and loving and reaching out to others. You see, God is pleased. And we are blessed. And people come to Christ. And the kingdom gets built. And the devil gets defeated. When we redeem our hurts and turn them into help. Well, when you're fighting about with the blues... You need to remember three truths. Remember who God is. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Remember what God does in us. He comforts us in all our tribulations. And remember what God does through us. He comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Hey, God is for you. He comes alongside you. He uses you to comfort others. Remember that truth, and it will help cure your bout with the blues.